0: What a wonderful hymn. John Newton uh, sure had a way with writing hymns that really cause our hearts to melt, don't, didn't he? Of course, Amazing Grace probably being one of his most famous ones, but even that one there, written by Newton, as he's written hundreds more uh, besides that. Well, it is good to open up the Word of God with you, and I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of First Kings, chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17 will continue our exposition of this book, and in particular focusing on the life of Elijah, as uh, the the final chapters focus on his life and ministry. Uh, Before I begin, I want to just mention one thing, that it's interesting to think of how the Bible uses the word gold. There's a lot of talk about gold these days, because gold just hit an all-time high but look at the Bible's use of gold, and it's used in many different ways. It's very significant. It's mentioned as early as Genesis 2, believe it or not, and mentioned in the last chapters of Holy Scripture when referring to the new heavens and the new earth. It's very high-density type of metal. It could be, It's very versatile. It can be made into a thousandth of an inch thick. It could actually be made into thread. Little flowers could be made out of a thousandth of an inch thick of gold. But figuratively, gold is used speaking of God purifying his children. And when they come through that purification, when they come through that trial, they shine as gold. You have verses such as Job 23, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Proverbs 17, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but God tests the hearts. God takes His servants and, as it were, puts them into the furnace of affliction and heats it up. Gold needs to be over a thousand degrees to melt. Heats it up very hot to remove all the dross, all the impurities. And sometimes that hurts, and sometimes it's hard to go through that as children of God. And we'll see that in Elijah's. Elijah really is humbled to the dust Elijah, a mighty man of God, we will see in our text today for some three years, is dependent upon ravens and a poor widow to provide for his need. Remember we said he's a man's man, and here he is dependent on these sources to survive. This poor Gentile widow will look at her in a a short time. But but why does God do this for his children? Well, there's many reasons, and and the topic of the sermon is really not going to be focusing on this exclusively. But one reason, surely, is that, as it says in Peter, "...so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Christ." Think of the life of Moses, how he's in the middle 40 years of his life. He's a lonely shepherd serving, right, as a shepherd. But the Lord is preparing him for his ministry that lied ahead in those last 40 years of his life, leading the people of Israel out of slavery. As we just read in uh, James, blessed is the man who perseveres in trial, he shall receive the crown of righteousness. So the Lord is working something into Elijah, and we will see that, preparing him for what we'll see in the chapters to come, which is some incredible ministry. Now, just by way of review... Um, and, and the context, uh, very briefly, we saw last week, and we've been talking about for some weeks now, since Solomon went after other wives, the decline of Israel. And it's been a steady decline, hasn't it? And, and they're just going from bad to worse in very dark days. And King Ahab comes to the throne. And his, and in his he outdoes all the wickedness of those before him, walks in his forefather Jeroboam and his father Amri. And then he marries wicked Jezebel, who brought about Baal worship in Israel. And so Ahab, as it were, threatens to exterminate the true worship of Yahweh for the worship of idols. And just when we least expect it, just when it's the darkest time, God breaks in on the scene and he sends Elijah to come and to minister to this nation and to confront this religious apostasy. And that's really what we looked at last time. Elijah comes on and 17 and verse 1, which I told you last week really should be with part of uh, chapter 16. He has a three-point sermon. It's very simple. As the Lord your God, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these days, third, except by my word." He confronts King Ahab to his face. We don't know if he went into the palace. We don't know where this was, but certainly he came to King Ahab and said this. And this has huge ramifications for an agrarian culture, doesn't it? Because if there's no rain, there's no crops. If there's no crops, there's no food. And if there's no food, that means what? Starvation and death. And so this is huge. So Elijah instantly uh, goes to the top of the charts, public enemy number one, because it's by his word that rain can come back again. How does Elijah um, withstand all this opposition and all that? Certainly, James 5, we read that last week. He's He's a man of fervent prayer. And I ended last week with asking where are the Elijahs today? Where are the men of courage that will stand up in dark days to confront sin when sin and wickedness is all around us? But instead of turning your eyes the other way, to, with tact and with much prayer, to confront the wickedness that is around us. Well, let's read our text. The title of the message is The Provision and Perseverance in Perilous Times. 17 and verse 2, if you'll find your place, please. The word of the Lord came to him saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and lived by the brook Careth, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it he called to her and said, "Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand." But as she said, but she said, "As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar." And behold I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as I have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bull. Of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. And the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Let's go to the Lord and pray and ask His blessing on this time. Our Father and our God, we bow our hearts before You one more time. begging You, O Lord, to visit us by Your Holy Spirit during this hour. Lord, we confess we can be dull of heart and dull of understanding. And Lord, we pray that You would send the Holy Spirit to grant understanding, to open up ears, to open up minds, that we might discern great and wonderful things from Your Word as it is opened up. We pray that you would help the weak one that is bringing your word this day. We pray all this to the end that Jesus Christ would be exalted during this time and that saints would be built up and edified and challenged and encouraged to walk in greater faithfulness with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll see that this mighty prophet is humbled by many external circumstances which are all brought upon by by, uh, providence, Yet he does not question and fully obeys the Lord God as he is told each step of the way. We'll observe how God provides for his chosen messengers in order for them to continue in their work. It's amazing if you think about it. And if you've read all the first Kings, he's going to use birds to provide. Then he's going to use what? A poor widow to provide. Then he's going to use angels to provide in chapter 19. The whole creation is ready to obey the Lord God, the Almighty Creator who created all things. So today, I've broken up the text just in two simple uh, sections, entitling them both Do You Obey the Lord? Question mark. Number one, when it does not make sense. And secondly, in the face of difficult circumstances. So, first of all, do you obey the Lord when it does not make sense? We have a series here of the most unlikely events that you would ever expect in Holy Scripture. Uh, Elijah is told and to go and hide in a desolate place where people don't live, and to go and depend on birds to provide for his, his uh, to sustain him. Yahweh leads Elijah to this solitude place, and it's really a picture of judgment against Israel. The word of the Lord comes to him. Chapter 17 came to him saying, Go away from here and turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Kareth east of the Jordan. Now it's important to understand, why didn't he just send him to the Jordan? The Jordan's not going to dry up. (laughs) If you know something, the Jordan, there's a lot of water. But God has a purpose, he has a plan, and he sends him to really what a seasonal stream and a ravine. You see some of this in the desert here in San Diego County. You see some of these washes that... During rainy season, they could have water, and there'll be water trickling. But in the summer, there's not going to be any water there. That's what this was. It was a wadi, it was a ravine, a seasonal stream, and that's where he sends him. In fact, the very word kereth means, the H is silent in that, means to separate or to cut away. And isn't that exactly what God is doing with Elijah? He is separating him from his covenant people, the source of the word of God, separating him and pulling him away into a place. God knew that there was an international search warrant for him. (laughs) Find Elijah and you can kill him if you find him. So this is God's witness protection plan. But more than that, God is teaching him something here. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says... In verse 3, he humbled you and he let you go hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So Elijah's absence from the nation is really an indictment of God, of, of a divine displeasure with Israel because of their idolatry. The psalmist Cries similarly in Psalm 74 and says, Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture and your congregation which you purchased of old? Later in verse 9, it says, And there is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. God's displeasure is upon the nation because of their sin. And He takes, as it were, the very word of God, the mouthpiece for God, and takes and pulls Him away from the nation. So his disappearance spells the absence of the Word of God from the life of Israel. And so not only is there a famine of food and water in the land, but there's a famine for the Word of God in the land during this time as well. A later prophet, Amos, would say in regards to this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread and water, but rather of hearing the words of the Lord people will stagger from sea to sea and from north and even to the east and they will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord but they will not find it again an indictment a judgment on the people of God this would be after the exile during the time of Amos so God is angry with Israel as One commentator took and reworded uh, Psalm 19 in verse 1. This is what's going on. Every day and every night in Israel, the heavens are telling of the anger of God and the firmament proclaims the heat of His wrath. That's what's going on. God is angry with Israel because they've gone after other gods. They've gone after idolatrous worship. So Elijah here is sent on about a 15-mile journey from where he was at. So, the... The God who rules all nature, who shut up the heavens from rain, has now commanded ravens to care for Elijah, verses 4-6. to He brings him to a brook. He says that he's going to send ravens to provide food. And in a famine, um, beggars can't be choosy, can they? In a famine, if you're hungry enough, you're going to eat anything you can. Bugs, whatever. But God commanded ravens to care for him. And not just bread, but meat. Meat. So he's being brought. He's, he's eating better than all of Israel. He might be even eating better than the king. We don't know for sure, but, but he's, he's being treated very well here. Now, what do ravens typically eat? Besides insects, they usually eat dead meat, roadkill, right? That's the kind of thing you see them if there's something dead on the road or pulling that apart and ripping it apart and that kind of thing. And that's why God and the law of Moses said ravens are unclean. You're not to eat them. You're not to handle them. They're unclean according to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and Leviticus chapter 11. And yet God commands these unclean animals to come and to bring meat to Elijah. And not just meat, not dead meat. They actually, the, in the, it's, it's flesh this is actually the translation. He's bringing flesh. And so it's some indication that there's, it's not rotten meat. It's, it's still edible to eat. Spurgeon says ravens never croaked out a single objection to what they had been commanded to do. They just obeyed the Lord. Now meat would have been considered, as I said, a luxury during this time in Israel. This is a time of famine. And so Elijah is being taken care of. And really it's sort of a garden in the midst of the wilderness, a little bit of paradise in the midst of a land stricken with famine. But then look in verse 6. It says that... The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and in the evening they brought him bread and meat. So it wasn't just once a day. Now, you kids, you've been studying the Pentateuch and the book of Exodus. How often were the children of Israel fed during the time in the wilderness? Was it twice a day? No, it was once a day, right? Once a day the manna fell, and and not on the Lord's Day, not on the Sabbath day twice as much fell the day before. But here, Elijah's being taken care of twice a day. Once a day is amazing. Twice a day is perplexing. So he's got a good good, uh, breakfast and a good dinner every day. What does all this point to? This certainly points to God's undying faithfulness to his prophet. It's a graphic picture of God's marvelous provision for Elijah in the midst of very desperate circumstances where people are dying. People are dying from famine. Maybe there were carcasses on the way as he walked those fifteen miles. We don't know. But people are dying. And God is giving him his daily bread and then some. Notice that he did not receive enough bread to stockpile some, to like, you know, isn't that our tendency? That's my tendency. Is, okay, let me just okay, I'll just save a little bit each day, and you know, I'll have enough for a week just in case. God fails me for a few days, I'll have some backup, right? Sometimes we can think like that. But never did Elijah receive more than just enough for that day. Now, that doesn't teach you to live by faith. Of course, we're going to see that that, uh, he lived like this for years. Same thing with the widow, when that jar, as we'll get to in a moment, would not go empty. It's not as though it filled up, and then it lasted for two weeks, and then it would fill it up again. It was just a little layer in the bottom, enough to survive for that day, day by day by day. But he was resolute to walk in the will of the Lord. He was resolute to obey His covenant God. And so, in Elijah's mind, this daily meat brought by unclean ravens and maybe hard, crusty little corners and crumbs of bread were better than all the delicacies in Ahab's palace because he was walking in the will of the Lord. He was doing what was right before him. He is content to be at the brook as long as God has ordained it. Again, it's just amazing to consider how unlikely it is that God would use these circumstances to provide for his prophet. Birds of prey to provide meat to preserve the life of Elijah. Well, thirdly, under this point, will you obey the Lord's will? We saw, look in verse 5. When he's told to go here, it says, so he went and he did. He didn't dialogue with God. You remember Moses in the burning bush? Wait, 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 wait. You got the wrong guy. I have a stuttering problem. No, 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 no. There's no dialogue here. He simply went and did and obeyed. His actions are marked by obedience to God's revealed will. God's living word that had come to him became a conquering word to the heart of Elijah. That he could do nothing else but to obey his covenant God. To obey his Lord. We see a picture here of Elijah submitting in humility to his sovereign God. And we see a picture of sovereign grace here as well. Our obedience to God is a vital aspect of His protecting grace in our life. In fact, on the path of obedience, that's where blessings come in our life. Seek first the kingdom of God and all His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. The proverb says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but to just obey. He went and He did. No questions asked. God said it. That's enough for me. I'm going to do it. And that's what he did. Well, next, your faith is strengthened through trials. Now, the, there came a time where the brook dried up. Now, in Israel, you had the what was called the early and the late rains, and the, and the late autumn rains, the, this, the rains that would come at this time, never came. They came after the harvest to prepare the soil for planting, and they never came. And so the brook dried up. And there was no more water. The psalmist says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Brothers and sisters, there's a brook that we're going to that will never dry up in eternity. But here, the brook dries up. Consider the thoughts that are going through Elijah's mind. As he's wrestling with this, the brook's gone dry. Maybe he he has a dry throat and he's asking, has God forsaken me? I haven't had a drink. We don't know for days. We don't know for how long. But certainly there's something going on here. First Peter in chapter 5 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And Elijah had promises like these to him that he would not forsake his prophet, but at this time he must wait on the Lord. God knows what He's doing in this situation. Well, what do we do when our resources dry up? Just by way of an app, quick application, two points of application. What do we do when something suddenly dries up in our life? Whether it's that job, that income, that retirement check, or whatever. What are we prone to do when things are taken away from us? When the ability to provide for your family is taken away? and you've got to radically change how you live? When your child is born with Down syndrome, and you've got to radically change the way you plan on living your life? What do you do when change comes upon you in such a way that sickness comes and you know you have one to two years left to live because of cancer or some other disease? What do you do when your brook dries up? Is your trust in the Lord? Are you waiting on the Lord? Are you dependent upon Him? What do you do when there's those harsh divisions that can occur within a family? Or even, sadly, sometimes even within a church? You see, we have to come to terms with the fact that a father will never leave his children and that God is there even through those difficult times. Even during those times when our brook dries up, he is there, he is near, and he will not forsake his children. He loves his children, he is faithful. It's Peter 4.19, we read it, Therefore also those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That's what we have to come back to. We entrust our souls to a faithful Creator that knowing that He is doing right, whatever is going on in my life, how hard it is to deal with, yes, God will grant grace for that, but we entrust ourselves to Him. Second point of application, sometimes... God leads us to places of solitude. Sometimes God leads us to places of loneliness. Do you think Elijah was hungry for some fellowship? Elijah's here for, we don't know, months probably by the brook. Um, The scripture doesn't tell us exactly, uh, but he's there for some time. And sometimes God will lead us to these types of places to humble us, sometimes to instruct us to teach us something, to teach us a lesson, sometimes to chastise us and to expose sin that's within ourselves. You see, Elijah was a man's man. He was a man of action and left to himself. Do you think you'd find him hiding somewhere at this point in his ministry? No. No. We would expect him to be out there preaching. He, A man of action going around the country exposing the sins of idolatry. Pointing the people back to Yahweh as the one true God. That's what we would expect Elijah to do. Why God? Do you have him sitting for months and really years if you count the time at the widow's house? But he obeys the word of the Lord. He obeys the revealed will of God revealed to him. And it's not, brothers and sisters, that you and I, we look for an audible voice or I think I had a dream and God was telling me to do this. Don't start trusting your dreams and don't even trust voices that you hear. We have the final revelation of the word of God. He has spoken clearly to us in these last days and in his son. This is where we learn what God's will is. We shouldn't expect any new revelation and new voices and new dreams and these types of things. The Word of God will guide us. The principles in the Word of God will lead us to His will. And that's what we're to walk in. It's these times of solitude, sometimes providence will lead us to these such situations. Matthew Henry says, when we cannot be useful, we must be patient. When we cannot work for God, we must sit quietly for Him. Sometimes God has His reasons and times for us to be uh, separated for a season. Sometimes we can even be tempted to despair in times of solitude, times of sickness, times of bereavement, times of providence where your work transfers you away to some small town and there's virtually no believers there and you miss and yearn for the fellowship you had. It's your previous church. Sometimes situations can come upon us like that. We need to remember that we're not alone when these times come. Jesus himself was 40 days in the wilderness, in the desert. Do you remember that? I've already mentioned Moses for one-third of his life spent as a lonely shepherd. The Apostle Paul in solitude in prison, yes, he had some visitors. Still, don't think that there wasn't times of of loneliness there, and yet he's being used to encourage the church writing some of the greatest epistles that we have in all the Word of God. So Elijah is not alone. The Lord is with us. And really, um, times of solitude are great times for communion with Him. Those are some of the best times of communion with the Lord. Even apart from your morning, which I hope each of you have a morning routine where you're, you have a time with the Lord of reading and prayer and seeking the Lord's uh, um, blessing on your day and, and that He guard your mouth and your actions and all of that thing. I hope, I'm assuming that each of you have that. But even that every day can become kind of a rote type of thing. And that's why to have special times of solitude Take an hour and go to the beach by yourself where there's nobody else there and pray. Take a time, an extra time besides your daily worship and commune with God. How sweet that is! He'll bring sin to the surface that you can repent of it and confess of it. You'll, you'll, you'll have times of mighty visitation. These are times that should be longed for. And I'd encourage you in this 21st century, 24 7 action lights entertainment constantly. To turn everything off, unplug everything for an hour and spend an hour in quiet solitude with the Word of God and in prayer. I challenge you to do that soon. Solitude can be good to break this pattern of busyness that we have in our lives. Well, moving on. Having considered Elijah's unflinching obedience, even when it doesn't make sense, we see here, and uh, the next section, do you obey the Lord in the face of difficult circumstances? We can be like Jonah sometimes. We can run the other way. When, it's, uh, when we hear the go to Zarephath, what? <laughs> what? I'm going the other way. <clears throat> Elijah is told here really to go into enemy territory. The word of the Lord comes. It's glorious. As he's sitting there waiting, he's waiting on the Lord. The Lord comes. And speaks to him and tells him what to do. He's told to go to Zarephath. This is shocking. Uh, Consider the uh, zip code, the mailing address of this place. This is pagan Gentile country. As one uh, commentator Davis says, it's Balesville in Gentile land. That's where he's being called to go. Here it is the faithful prophet sent to minister to Israel. And he's sent to pagan country. Now, the Hebrew word for Zarephath means smelting place or refinery. And refine Elijah, he will. He will teach him to depend on God. What he didn't learn at the brook, he's going to learn in the widow's house in these coming years. He is being prepared for this great conflict that we're going to see in a few weeks. And 1 Kings 18, when he's before the prophets of Baal, that great conflict that takes place there, he's being prepared for that. But to get to Zarephath, he would have to travel some 100 miles, leaving his place of comfort. Maybe he had a shady nook by the brook and he had everything fixed up just right. And, but no, God says, it's time to move on. Move away from your comfort through Israel, where he's public enemy number one, and the warrant that was out was if anybody sees Elijah, kill him, you can do it. So he has to pass through, all the way through Israel, and up to Zarephath. Zarephath belongs to Sidon. Now that should sound familiar, just from last week's message in 1631. That's where Jezebel was from. That's where her father was king. So the drought had infected them as well, and Therefore, Elijah would not be welcomed very warmly. And it begins Arise, go to Zarephath, in verse 9, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. And behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. The behold, it emphasizes what follows. He's commanded the widow. And there's no indication that the widow knew that she was commanded in the text. Do you realize that? And so this important Hebrew word, which occurs some 400 times in the Old Testament, actually sometimes means ordained. And I think in verse 4, we saw it, where it commanded the ravens, and here that God has foreordained that the ravens would care for him, just as he's foreordained that this widow would care for him. I don't think the widow received any voice from the Lord. She's just doing her normal, normal um picking up of sticks each day to feed her son and herself. And so we see that God is sovereign over all of nature, even the birds of the air. Now, consider God's words here. This is, again, this is a mighty prophet, Okay, a prophet that's ministering in a land that's experiencing famine where people are dying, and I'm going to send you to a widow to provide for you. Now, if you know something of what it meant to be a widow then, a widow meant to be poor and destitute and needy. In biblical times, you see, widows didn't, if their husband died, they didn't go back to college, get some more credits, and then go and get their real estate license, or open up you know, uh, grandma's daycare center and, and get by pretty well with all the pensions. No, it meant that they were poor, barely surviving, dependent upon others hopefully family to care for them Elijah might have thought you know God depending on ravens sounds a little better than a destitute widow we don't know but God moves in a mysterious way even when it's irrational it's unconventional I mean we can never dream this stuff up God declares it and has ordained it and it's a beautiful picture of how he works he uses unclean ravens and an unlikely widow to sustain his mighty prophet so verse 10 we see it again what does he do? So he arose and he went. Again, no dialogue, but God, what are you doing here? You know, a widow? He goes in obedience, unflinching obedience. He risks his life. But God says to go to the furnace beyond Israel. That's what Zarephath means. Well, God sovereignly work is working his purposes behind the scenes. Now, consider this journey, 100 miles. You kids, you know how far 100 miles is. I'm sure some of these kids have been to Disneyland. That's about 100 miles. It takes about two hours to drive. Can you imagine walking there? And can you imagine walking there through mostly desert? That's how far Elijah had to go. Just think of the doubts and deliberations that might have come to his mind. A hundred miles in the heat. Obviously, you had some water supply. Maybe the Lord was supplying water along the way. <clears throat> and not only that is he's considering this, it's not as though he's supposed to go there for a weekend and, and preach and then leave and come home, right? He's going there to live here in Balesville. So, he, you know, how humbling this is. Traveling into enemy territory to expect a widow to provide for him. The questions that were everywhere. Will I make it? Will I be captured? What will I say if I stand before Ahab with the sword at my throat? What will I do? Has God left me? And, and then just think as, he, as he's nearing the end, he's on the 99th mile and he's coming up to the gate of the city. Who am I going to see? And the city first. All of these thoughts are going through his mind. And it's, it's times like this that Satan just loves to come. And, and as it's illustrated in Pilgrim's Progress, those little darts of doubt that are they're shot. And these are times when God's people are most susceptible, tempted to deny God's care of them. And Jesus, during His 40 days in the wilderness, was tempted much like this, wasn't He? Doubting, doubting the God's care of Him. And how did Jesus fight that? With the Word of God, three times, right? He responded back. When Elijah here is banking all of his hope on the Word of God. In fact, in Pilgrim's Progress, during that beautiful scene with Apollyon and, and, and Christian fighting, Christian's knocked to his back. Apollyon's about to take the final blow. And what is he? He remembers the sword of the Spirit and grabs it and gives Apollyon a mortal blow. See, there's power with relying on the word of God. And Elijah is banking all of his hope on the word. So he comes to the gates and he sees a woman. There's an assumption that it's her. He begins to dialogue with her. Well, let's look at this in some detail. <clears throat> the widow of Zarephath meets the prophet Elijah. And actually, she meets the God of Elijah as well. Look in verse 10. So he rose and he went he came to the gate, and behold, a widow was there, and he says, Please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. Now, that's striking. This is in the, the midst of a famine. There hasn't been rain for some time, and he's, he's, he's telling a complete stranger to give him a drink. If that's not enough, he says, Make me a little bread. Bring me a bread cake. And, of course, she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour. So she's hopeless. She has very little food. She's got enough for one last supper here as she goes. And she's collecting these sticks. Her God, Baal, her former God, will say, has led her down into a pit of hopelessness. The God of rain, remember? That's who a Baal is. But God would put her into service in serving this prophet. She's going to die. She doesn't ask for help. She doesn't say, but sir, you don't understand. I only have the No, she's going to die. And really, it's a picture of her dying to herself as we see her profession and her um, trusting in the promise of God. Look what Elijah says in verse 13. Do not fear. Have you ever studied in the Word of God every time God's people are told, do not fear? It will encourage your hearts. Desperate, trying times that God's people are in. And when the message comes, do not fear. In the King James, fear not It comes with force. It comes with encouragement to the people of God. And here it is glorious, comforting words. And he gives reassurance. Let's read 13 and 14. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as I have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards you can make one for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So there's some reassurance given here. And, and he even asked, Give, Make me a cake first. Now if her heart was not already conquered, and forsaking Baal, and willing to trust the God of Israel, do you know what a natural parental response would be? When your son's about to die and is hungry, you're crazy, man. This is for me and my son. But she goes and she obeys, totally against parental instinct. And I think there's something here, is, since Elijah is God's representative, there's, some, there's a principle here that we should give to God our first fruits. Okay, Not go and feed yourself and then if there's anything left over, give it to God, but we give to God of our first fruit, fruits and the principle of tithing and all of that. We're not going to go into that. But the word of the the Lord comes with this glorious promise that the meal will not be exhausted nor the oil. One man said, Faith is staking everything upon the sheer word of Yahweh and wagering all upon the veracity of God. And that's really what this widow did. Consider this widow for a moment. She's already lost her husband, hence she's called the widow. We don't know her name. And we know she's from that country there. Now she's in fear of losing her son. Maybe she's lost other children. We don't know. But she's lost a husband. She's close to losing a son. She comes to the gates of the city. She's weak. She's frail. She has no hope. She, she thinks, uh, just think of how she felt. Maybe she certainly doubted the existence of Baal because Baal's supposed to be the god of rain and there's no rain, there's no crops, there's hardly any food, any grain in the land. Maybe she considered, why is the God of Israel not hearing my cries as I cry to Him? Because I know that it's the prophet of Yahweh that has caused the heavens to be stopped up. And it's in His power to bring rain and to provide. Maybe every time she scraped the bottom of that little barrel of meal, and just trying to get a little more in that little measuring cup or whatever, she thought, does God hear me? I'm about to die. I'm running out. That's how this widow felt. Maybe she considered, well, God's not hearing me because I'm a foreigner. How can I worship Yahweh when I'm a foreigner? What she could not see, God was close in this situation, working behind the scenes, even working in her heart. And even when it says, behold, she was gathering sticks, maybe she thought it was her last time, but we don't find her murmuring. We don't find her complaining. But this is the very place where sovereign grace comes She's at the right place, at the right time, at the very p- the time that Elijah walks into the city. She's there at that very morning in fulfillment of the Word of God. So you see something happening from both ends, don't you? Elijah's told to go. By the way, probably six-day journey or something, a hundred miles in that kind of heat. I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but... He's, he's walking for days. The widow just happens to come because he's ordained it, remember, that they would meet at the gate of the city right at that exact time. Not five minutes sooner, not five minutes later, exactly at that time. God is sovereignly working in the, the situation from both ends, bringing the widow and Elijah together. So we have here a picture of two people whose total resources amount to what? What? Just about nothing. <laughs> very, very little. Elijah's got nothing. The widow has enough for one meal. And here they are, this meeting. But God has a purpose in each one. We see there's several examples that could be cited of God's purposes. And in and, and situations like this, you remember when Joseph was sold into slavery, his brothers thought they were doing something uh, so sneaky and good, and yet he's in uh, Egypt there, and he's able to provide and really rescue Israel in Genesis 5020, the brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We see supreme sovereignty in situations such as Saul's radical conversion. How else can you explain Jesus saving two men from Jericho from opposite ends of the social spectrum? You've got rich Zacchaeus on the one hand and blind Bartimaeus on the other, both in Jericho. It's his sovereign mercy that comes to save the richest man and the poorest man of the town, perhaps. It's His sovereign mercy because He's not a respecter of person. It's not about how many good works we've done. It's not about what we have to to offer God. It's not about our social status. It's it's based on God's mercy, why anyone is saved. Romans 9.16 So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And this Gentile widow experiences the wideness of God's mercy in these verses. As she clings to that promise, she believes in that promise, she's about to die. Grace moves beyond the Jewish borders into this pagan land and saves this widow. She joins a host of other Gentile Old Testament saints, Rahab and Ruth and Naaman, Cornelius also in the New Testament, and this is really well this picture what we have here is only just a picture of what we have in the new covenant. The dividing wall is broken down. Salvation is open to Jew and Gentile alike. There is no longer Jew Gentile difference. The wall has been broken down. We have been grafted in. In fact, Jesus refers to this exact story in Luke chapter 4 and don't turn there. I'll just read this. <clears throat> Jesus says in 4:25, but I say but I say to you in a truth that there were many widows in, the, in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and when the great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in, the, in Israel during the time of Elijah the prophet, but none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Cyrene. And all the people of the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things and they drove him out of the city. And that's when they tried to push him over the cliff. Why were they so mad? Because if you're rejecting the Word of God, Pharisees, Israel, if you're rejecting the very Son of God, I'm going to the Gentiles. The very thing that Paul says in Acts chapter 17. And so it's an indictment, it's a judgment on God's people bypassing Israel. Now, it should be said that Sovereignty does not mean that we can live inactive and foolish lives. The widow was busy working, wasn't she? It's her last meal. She's out there working. She's gathering sticks. She's, she's being industrious. She's doing what she knows to do to survive. It's a lesson for us, even if it seems like all of our means are being cut off and radical change is taking place. We need to be faithful with what God has set forth in His Word, no matter what. For well, the flour and the oil never become empty, verse 16. It's according to the word of the Lord. Yahweh is able to provide for the needs of his people, Matthew six twenty-five. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Certainly he's going to care for us. But I think there's another principle that we want to grasp from this text as well. And it is this. Surely there's more to it than just we want to relate ourselves to Elijah. I'm a believer. Elijah was a believer. What about the faithful remnant that was suffering in Israel that were, being very, that were experiencing the famine? What about them? God's special care there is for the prophet. It's there before us. But we can also identify with the believing remnant clinging to the Word of God in spite of wicked Ahab under an oppressive, wicked government. And they were suffering under the drought as the rest of Israel. They were being tried. They were being tested as well. But the encouragement is as so long as God has work for any of His children to do, they are immortal. Isn't that what Whitfield said? He said... um, He said that God that I'm immortal until my work is finished. There's nothing that's going to stop me until God says, "That's that's the end. One commentator says, when our task in this life is completed and the Lord takes us away by his chosen means, sickness, accident, pestilence, or starvation, how death comes does not matter to those who recognize death is the Lord's way, for they listen to their Savior when he tells them, Do not worry about food and drink. So another angle mindset to relate to those that are suffering as well. Well, let's draw some concluding applications. So I've asked the question, do you obey the Lord when it doesn't make sense, when circumstances, when it seems irrational? Do we obey the Lord in times of difficulty and trial, when we're prone to wander, when we're prone to turn? Well, three points of application. First of all is the obvious. Give thanks to to God for His faithful provision for you. He has provided for you. He has provided for you faithfully. He's caused you to persevere in this life. He's provided materially for you. He's provided spiritually for you in giving you Christ, and giving a sinless Savior to pay for your sins. Paul would say in Philippians, "...and my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus." In Psalm 37, it says that, he's, that the righteous have never been forsaken. He will not forsake the righteous. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, these promises are not for you. Rest assured, these promises are for the people of God. Well, secondly, some are struggling in the midst of trial and sickness and difficulty. Some are weary in the battle. Some... Some of you, your brooks are, are about dried up, whether it's financial, whether it's health, whether it's a strain in a marriage. And, and you, you can be tempted to give up and to doubt His care. need to depend on Him and wait for new strength. Isaiah 40 says, "...the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not weary or become tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary." And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow up, grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, and they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. The encouragement is the Lord will give you new strength as you follow him faithfully, as you You rely on him. And then you can say with Job, even if you're in the midst of a trial, that that as you're being tried, you will come forth as gold as that trial is removed and alleviated. Thirdly, the necessity of obedience. We've seen the importance of obedience both in the life of the prophet and in the story of the widow. The widow actually obeyed too. She went and did according to the word of Elijah. Uh, obedience is important god promises are often connected to obedience on the part of the recipient god promises blessings to us but it's not that we earn blessings by doing this it's in response we walk in obedience by faith he tests us god seeks to strengthen those he loves and if you're sitting there patting yourself on the back saying, well, preach it. Yes, I've had such an upright life. I've got such a disciplined life. You wouldn't believe it. God's surely pleased with me. The reality is that at the end of the day, none of us can obey. None of us can obey perfectly. We strive for perfection. We want to please Him with all of our heart. We feel the Romans seven tension, the good that I would, I can't. And we, we sense that and we're all painfully aware of that. But there is one who's rendered perfect obedience on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to look to the righteousness of another, even Christ, as he has poured himself out on the cross and paid for our sins. He accomplished all that the Father sent him. He is the greater Elijah that does the Father's will whether it's preaching in Galilee or the earnest prayer in in Gethsemane, whether He's sweating, as it were, drops of blood, and whether it's going to Golgotha and hanging on that cross for six hours, three hours under God's unmitigated wrath being poured out upon Him and being buried in a tomb, dead, and then rising to life three days later, conquering death where death no longer has a sting. The Lord Jesus Christ did all that His Father did all his father to please him. So we need to trust in him today. The one that has rendered perfect obedience because we never can. Yes, Elijah does great here. We're going to see him later where he's not, his faith is a lot weaker in the chapters to come. And for all of us, sure, we have strong times, but other times we're struggling. We need to rely on him and him alone. He is the one that's rendered perfect obedience. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once and for all. The just for the unjust. So that He might bring us to God. And if you're sitting here today thinking that you are just. And that you're upright with God. Apart from the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are damned and you will go to hell. Repent of that thought. And confess that yes, I am unjust. Yes, I need the righteousness of another. Yes, I have sinned before a holy God. And the only hope for me is a bloody Christ that's paid for my sins. And it is Him that I embrace by faith. That's what you have to do. You young people, sit here and you hear the Gospel week after week. Repent and come to Christ. Come to Him for salvation. Thanks be to God that He's made provision and providing a wonderful Savior who's died for our sins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the example of perseverance and provision that we see in Elijah. We thank you, Lord, even in each of our lives. We could discuss that and talk about that for hours of your kindness and your sovereignty in our lives. But Lord, we know that also there's times where troubles assail us and they can strain us. And Lord, we just thank you that you bring us through each and every one. Lord, those here whose brooks are almost dried up and they're close to despairing and doubt, Lord, I pray that they would entrust themselves to You. Lord, that they receive the fullness of the rivers whose streams make glad the city of God, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and the fullness of Christ, how I pray, Lord, that You'd speak to every heart here, that You'd encourage us, Lord, in the battle, that You'd strengthen us and prepare us to see You face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.